0: As April said, we have been studying the attributes of God, and what inspired me to do this sermon series was a book by Jen Wilkin, and it's been really fun, right? Yeah, it's been great. So uh, today we are moving to the next attribute of God. Now if you, so if the word attribute weirds you out a little bit, uh, basically all that means is that it's a characteristic of God, it's part of who He is. Um, So we have attributes, you and I do. Um, physical. Uh, our personalities have attributes. It's just part of who we are, part of a way of describing who we are. So uh, when we say the attributes of God, that's not a giant um, churchy word. It's just another way to describe who we are. Um, so what we did was there are uh, this, as you read about the attributes of God, depending on who you're reading, you'll have slightly different lists of the attributes of God. Um, but they all basically say the same thing. Some guys um, will split them up Um, more specifically, or we'll put two together because they overlap so much that they're kind of saying the same thing. Um, So the list that we're using basically describes God in 20 different ways. So there's 20 different attributes of God. What we did was we split them into two groups. Um, The first group is uh, the, the 10 ways that God is not like us, right? So, I mean, he's God, we're not, and so there are ways in which he is different from us, And so the group of attributes that we are going through right now uh, is called none like him. Uh, None of us are like him. No one is like him. And so this is the list of attributes that describe God as being totally different than us. So that's the group of attributes that we're going through right now. When we're done with that, we'll get to the the list of attributes um, uh, in which we are like him, right? Because we are created in his image. So there are a lot of ways in which we are like him. And we can actually see God through each other. In those ways. So, um, this has been really fun, and that's going to be really fun differently. So, here we go. Um, The attribute that we're on today is called immutability. Uh, Again, another really big, weird word. Uh, Basically, all it means is that God is unchanging. God is unchanging. Uh, And so, if you've spent any amount of time in this world, you know that, again, that's a way that He is not like us, right? He is. Completely unchanging. Uh, scripture talks about this repeatedly and unapologetically, over and over and over. God is described in this way: His person does not change. Uh, Malachi three six four says, "For I, the Lord, do not change." Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, this this uh, passage, if we were to read the entire chapter of Malachi chapter three, we would see that God, what He's doing is describing the coming of the Messiah and his potential judgment on the nation of Israel. But here in verse 6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So this is a verse of incredible mercy, based on the unchanging personhood of who God is. It's wonderful. His plans do not change. Psalm thirty-three eleven says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And his purpose does not change. And Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse, th- for thir- verse 13, it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So the promise that God made to Abraham was that I w- I'm going to bless uh, your family greatly. Through you, there's going to be this giant family, uh, greater than the sands Of the sea, and through your family, I'm going to bless all nations. And so, as we see from that moment when God makes that promise to Abraham, all the way through Scripture, we see that promise being fulfilled and ultimately being fulfilled through Jesus. And we now being included in the family of Abraham, the nation of Israel, the Jewish. Uh, ethnicity, we now have been included in the promises that God gave to them through Jesus. So the, the promises made to Abraham are still being fulfilled and given to us, right? So again, I'll start over. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. Seeing and knowing that the promises and the purposes of God are unchanging, that gives us hope, right? If those promises are for us, then that should give us incredible hope. Why? Because they don't change. They're irrevocable. They're set in stone. We have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, So the inner place behind the curtain in the Jewish temple was the Holy of Holies, right? It's where the presence of God dwelt. Now what does it say? We have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus became what we needed in order to experience God in an intimate way. And... That hope is unchangeable. The promises of God, the purposes of God, the plans of God do not change. And if we look back at the Old Testament and then moving into the New Testament, we see that sometimes from our point of view, it seems like God's switching things up a little bit. right? So when Jesus came, and uh, as David read, the, the, the nation of Israel was looking for their Savior to do some very specific things. So when Jesus came and said, no, 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 you misunderstand. It's not like that. They kind of threw a fit about it, right? And they actually killed him. Which then reveals to us as we read back, we go, ah, oh, that was his plan all along. See, God doesn't react to us. God's plans are unchanging. And again, that gives us incredible confidence and incredible hope. His word doesn't change. Hebrews chapter 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Now, the writer of Hebrews, in saying that, right, he says, uh, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Why? because you don't need to love money because of the promises made to you. And then he, what does he do? The writer of Hebrews, what does he do? He quotes the Old Testament, right? So the writer of Scripture is quoting Scripture. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, quoting Deuteronomy. So we shall confidently say, quoting Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His word doesn't change. He doesn't change. And I also think it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews actually equates Jesus not changing with the word not changing, right? So he quotes two different passages from the Old Testament and then says, hey, uh, follow this word that your leaders have taught to you. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So because Jesus doesn't change, we can have confidence that his word never changes. What is sin is sin. And we can get caught up in all kinds of conversations about culturally acceptable things, right? But sin is sin. It doesn't change. Righteousness is righteousness. Good is good. It doesn't change because the standard of those things does not change. And again, in a world and in a culture that is constantly changing, that's an incredible anchor for our soul. That's an incredible anchor for our life that we can go somewhere and find, okay, I'm not sure what's going on here. What's the standard? Where, like, where am I supposed to head? There is a standard, and that standard does not change. James chapter 1, verse 17, that says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You remember the old uh, Prudential commercials? Right? Anybody uh, know what their logo is? I don't know if it still is. What was that? The Rock of Gibraltar, this giant... 1,000-foot rock that's in the Strait of Gibraltar if you're going from the Mediterranean Sea out into the Atlantic Ocean. There's this giant rock that has stood there for thousands of years. Like It's just this symbol of the unchangingness. And so this insurance company shrewdly uses this rock as their logo. um, Falsely, probably, right? Because that's, I mean, insurance companies. Sorry, Todd. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, man. There are no emergencies in this life that God needs to react to. Nothing in this life surprises him. And again, from our perspective, that can seem um, heartless, cruel, even sometimes, right? Every single person that has been in this room has been through things that have caused them to question the goodness of God. And so when we hear that God is unchanging and we think back on those circumstances, we think, well, what the heck? But we see things from a point of view that is extremely limited. And as we, this is part of the beauty of God's attributes is as we've been studying through them, we get a complete picture of who he is. And so when we see his unchanging nature, that's something that causes us confidence, hope, joy. Because we know more intimately and more uh, completely who he is and what he is like. Colossians chapter 1. Sometimes I think, I mean, for the most part, I think that the best way to convince us of these truths that we're learning about God is just to read how Scripture talks about them over and over and over. Because it's like, in any one of these attributes, it's not like, well, you know, this verse talks about it. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Especially if we have the eyes to see, we see it all over the place. So Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So the writer of Colossians just said that Jesus, so the Bible begins, Genesis chapter 1, first three words are what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the the writer of Colossians just said, and what David read in John chapter one was, um, "How did God do that Through Jesus?" So this is incredible. Like right, we're celebrating Christmas eight days from now, right? Celebrating Jesus coming to earth as a baby. You're trying to tell me that that baby created everything? Yes. And yet. He's unchanging? Yes. These are huge things to wrap our minds around. There's no getting around that. But the Bible talks about them over and over and over. All right, so. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what that just said, what that passage in Colossians just said was that Jesus created everything. Everything that was made was made by him, through him, and for him. And it says that through him to reconcile all things to himself Himself, All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So before Jesus created everything that exists, this was the plan. The cross is not a reaction to our sin. God's plan of redemption existed before the world did. Again, that should give us incredible hope because that says that God loved me so much that he created me knowing I was going to rebel against him and knowing that he was going to die for me, willingly. And his willingness does not change based upon how good you are that day. Our right standing before God is through the blood of Jesus, not through uh, how many cuss words we didn't say or did say or whatever standard of holiness that we line for ourselves. Our right standing before God is through the blood of Jesus, period. And it doesn't change. It doesn't change. No matter how good you feel that day or how bad you feel that day, it doesn't change. Never changes. It is Immutable. Isaiah 46, starting in verse 8 Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. You hear that? Declaring the end from the beginning. There's no reaction. The end and everything from the beginning to the end has all been planned and has all been seen. Last week we talked about the fact that God is eternal. And we talked about how mind-blowing that was that time is actually a created thing and that God does not exist in it. He enters into it to be in relationship with us but is never bound by it. So this idea that God is actually outside of time and he is fully present in the beginning and fully present in the end, now. And he's also fully present here with us. So it's not like God sees the future. He looks forward and He is in the, he's in the future, right? If we're going to talk about it using the language of time. He is. That's why he introduced himself to Moses as I am. There's nowhere and no time that he isn't. So there's nothing that surprises him. There's nothing that catches him off guard. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Not most of it, not all of it, except for the part that you screwed up, right? All of it. I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness. That's us. Right? I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. I will put Israel, I will put salvation in Zion. Zion is what they called the city of Jerusalem. I will put my salvation there. Why is this important? We could talk about this all day, right? Why is the immutability of God, why is the unchangeable nature of God important? First of all, very first of all, It's like what we talked at the beginning, it's unlike us, right? We are not immutable, and yet we use that type of language all the time, right? Um, Anybody ever been discouraged or hopeless and said, I can't change, right? You're confronted with a sin or you're confronted with something that you just can't overcome, whatever it might be, and you're like, I can't change, We're claiming immutability. We don't think about it in those terms, right? So Jen Wilkin in her book would say that that's a lie from the pit of hell. She goes on to say, we use words like always and never so often, but human beings don't always and never anything. So never say that again. See what I did there? But we do, right? You're fighting with your wife. You always do this. You never do this. That's not true, right? That's just a really manipulative way to win an argument. We don't always and never do anything. We habitually do things. But always and never does not describe us as humans at all. But it describes God. It describes him Perfectly. We are not immutable. We are not unchanging. We are constantly changing. Right? I mean, I'm almost 40. I'm changing. Not for the better. Uh, One of my favorite pastors is famous for saying, gravity wins. Your ears and your nose never stop growing. I am painfully aware of that fact. We are changing constantly. Constantly. Uh, the term "never say never," right? Why? Why is that true? Because the world around us and the, the the existence that we live in is constantly changing. The climate changes, the economy changes, our job status, our health—constantly changing. So again, in a world and in an existence that is constantly changing, is it not our greatest hope that we are loved unchangeably? And that the God that created all of this and holds it all in the palm of his hand is unchanging. We can be sure of who he is. That's... Right. This is important because because of God's immutable, we can be sure of who he is today because he doesn't change. Right. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2 says, There is none holy like God. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. We know that he is holy because he doesn't change. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He does not change. And again, this is all over His Word. We can be sure that He loves us. 1 Corinthians 13. For if I speak the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, I, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It, is, that is, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Uh, anybody ever heard this at a wedding? Yes. Now, the love that this is describing, is that a human love? I mean, forget everything that it says about being patient, kind, not envy or boasting. Anybody married? Anybody like, yeah, that describes my marriage. If it does, we need to talk after the service. I need some advice. Right? Verse 8 says that love never ends. And so it's easy for us, right? Where She's wearing the white dress. We're wearing the tux or the bow tie and converse if you want to get cool and hipster whatever. Right? in a barn or in a church and we stand there and we recite these words, love never ends and we're gazing into each other's eyes. How many of, okay, I'm going to ask for a show of hands, right? How many of you fought on your honeymoon? How many of you fought within 24 hours? Right? Come on. Of your wedding. Like you said these things and in 24 hours you're like, I hate you, I'm going home to my mom, right? Your love ended. I'm just saying, this in no way describes human love. And so I'm not against using this passage in a wedding, but we need to be very articulate about how we describe what exactly is going on here. The love described here is not our love. It's not human love. Love that never ends only comes from him. and we can have confidence in our relationships and we can push into this kind of love that's given to us by God because he loves us this way this gives us incredible hope you guys incredible incredible hope incredible confidence first chronicles 16:0 oh, give thanks to the lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever Romans 8 starting in verse 38 for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus His love never changes there is nothing that you can do to make him not love you anymore. This is insane. This doesn't exist in our world. It only exists in Jesus. We can be sure that He will sustain us. Deuteronomy 36, which we just saw quoted in Hebrews 13, right? Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Psalm chapter 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah, right? We need somebody up. Curtis, can you give me a, yeah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord answers when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when they have grain and wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, look at verse 1. Answer me. When I call, O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when? When I was in distress, right? And then in verse 8, he says, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Last night I went to bed around 1130, and I laid awake for what felt like four hours. I don't know when I dozed off to sleep, but it was a long time. I don't know why. But I do know that there are nights when I cannot sleep because there are things that are weighing on me. Anybody? Anybody ever lose sleep because of stress, anxiety, distress? There hundreds of things. Yes, we all have. Even most of our kids have, believe it or not. So the writer of the psalm here, right, David, said that you gave me relief when I was in distress. So he went to bed distressed. And what he just said was that in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O God, make me dwell in safety. His confidence is where? His ability to sleep when he's in distress comes from where? It comes from God. Like, if God didn't do anything else but just gave us the ability to sleep when we're stressed out, that alone would be an un- otherworldly miracle. We can be sure of our joy. Um, one of my favorite books is by a guy named John Piper. It's called Desiring God. And In the beginning of, his, uh, of this book, he quotes a guy from a long time ago, a French dude by the name of Blaise Pascal. And uh, I was reading an article a couple weeks ago called Blaze of Glory. So if you are near or over 40, you can get that joke. Um, His name is spelled B-L-A-I-S-E. So Blaze of Glory, I don't know, forget, it's a bad joke. I thought it was good, but obviously it wasn't. Um, The first is this, that all men seek happiness. So Blaze says this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end the cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it it is the same desire in both attending with different views the will never takes the least step but to this object it is the motive of every action of every man even those who hang themselves all men seek happiness Jefferson High School last week had a kid commit suicide on the baseball field. I don't know his name. I don't know anything about him other than that he was obviously in incredible pain and discouragement and distress and hopelessness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. We want relief. We want joy. We want happiness. We want contentment. And in our desperation, we will seek it anywhere. The second quote is on the infinite abyss. It says, There was once in man a true happiness of which there now remain to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. Like we're trying to fill up this hole inside of us with everything around us to make us happy. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. God's immutability, God's unchanging character is where we find joy. I'm not saying you can't be satisfied in your work. I'm not saying you can't have fun and enjoy great food or anything else. Listen, I love love a great steak. I love my kids, I love my wife, I like working on our house, right? I got all kinds of things in my life that I enjoy. But if for a moment I place on those things my expectation for my unchanging joy, they will fail me. This is why relationships fail, because we place on those people the expectation of an unchanging, completely fulfilled happiness that they cannot redeem. Only God can. So God's unchanging nature and receiving God's unchanging love gives us the ability to love others and to be loved imperfectly. It gives us the ability to forgive others for not being God because we don't expect them to be God. Our unchanging, immutable joy only comes from Him. So this, man, I think of all the things, all the attributes that we've studied for so far, this is the one that's penetrated me the deepest in my heart. It's the one that's convicted me the most. Because if we're honest, we spend most of the day searching for our joy and our happiness and other things. And it doesn't last, so we move on. And it doesn't last, and so we move on. And the brokenness that we see in the world around us, so much of it is caused by this. Our dissatisfaction in everything. While God awaits, arms open, unchanging. Unchanging. waiting for you and for me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, we ask that as we study these things that you would indeed reveal yourself to us. We have talked over and over and over about the fact that we cannot come to you except in a heart of humility. So give us that heart, Father. As we worship you right now, we just ask that you would transform our hearts and show us your face. We ask these things in your name, amen.